0: If you have your Bibles with you this evening, I would ask you to turn to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, the very last section of chapter 3. I have the privilege of closing out our evening staff series on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians with the last section of chapter 3 and would like to inform you that Because of various other activities, next week we have our annual Christmas outreach to the community, caroling outreach to the community. And then on Sunday the 24th, we have our Christmas Eve service. And then we have no evening service on the 31st. Starting the first Sunday of 2024, we'll begin a new staff series in the Book of Acts. And so I'm looking forward to that and having the Word of God brought to us from the Book of Acts. But this evening we come to 2 Thessalonians 3, specifically chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 6. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you we, would not give you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this evening that you would open our hearts to your word, that as we study your word, we would see and know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be reminded of all that he has done on our behalf, that we would be eager to follow him and to serve him and to testify to his mercy and grace. This we pray. In Christ's precious name. Amen. Paul concludes this second letter to the Thessalonians on what might seem to the Christian an odd note. It's an extended comment and command about work. So the question we might ask is, what is work? I think for many, they see work as a necessary drudgery. It's something that we have to do. It's not something we desire to do. It's not something we get satisfaction from. It's a requirement. Others see work as a way to purchase pleasures. After all, we can't go on sumptuous vacations and buy expensive things unless we work and have the funds to do that. Still, others see work as a way to fulfill their ambition to find their self-worth, to show others how important and essential they are. And I think there are some who view work as a service to others. It's something that we do to assist others. But work is not exactly the most popular thing in America today. For many people, work is a four-letter word. And You all know the initials and the saying, T-G-I-F. We're so glad it's Friday. We're so glad that the work week is over and the weekend is here. Now, I have to tell you, that has an entirely different meaning for a pastor. (laughs) The weekend is the most challenging of times. But you know what people say. I'd rather be fishing than at work. Or they'll say, a bad day on the golf course is better than a good day at work. We tend to see work as something that's required and necessary, but not necessarily a blessing or even something that is commanded to us. This evening, Paul gives us some help in understanding work. And I want this to apply as generally as possible to the congregation this evening. So if you're sitting here this evening and you're saying, but pastor... I'm only eight. I can't even get a job yet. Well, you have work. School is your work. Helping out around the house is your work. And you say, well, pastor, I'm retired. Well, I hate to break the news to you. Retirement's not in the Bible. So don't call yourself retired. Do what a a good, dear friend of mine used to say. I'm not retired. I'm repurposed. I'm able to take on other tasks. Because I've been freed up from working during the week. But this evening, I'd like us to think about work in three ways. First, I'd like us to look at the broader context of work. What does labor mean? What is work? And then secondly, we'll look at the immediate context in our text, in Paul's day of work. And then finally, we're going to dive deeply into the text and look at the motivations to work. Well, let's begin then with the broader context of what work is all about. We should begin as we attempt to understand work with the Bible. Not with our culture, not with our own predisp- predispositions, but like everything else, we should go to the scriptures and we should not attempt to think that the Bible just simply ratifies what we consider correct. We actually have to Understand what the Bible says. And work in the Bible has always been a way to serve God. Work is honorable. Now, you might not know this if you didn't study the scriptures. You might think that work is a punishment. ...that it's a result of sin. But that's not the case. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis... ...we see in Genesis chapter 2... ...that in his innocence, before the fall... ...when he was given dominion over all of the creatures... ...Adam was told by God to work. To keep the garden. And so, this is a part of who we are as people. That is a part of our creation mandate... So don't think that work is just a result of the fall and we have to wait. And when Jesus comes back, we're done working forever. No, you are not. There will be work in glory. Now, work will not look like work in the world in glory. But we were made to work. Work brings glory to God, even in a sin-cursed world. Paul puts it this way in Colossians Chapter three, he says, bondservants, servants obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. Do not blunt the force of this text. Do not think that only applied to slaves in Paul's day with their masters. I think we can very easily substitute translation. Employees obey in everything. Those who are your earthly employers. So it applies to us today, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, Paul takes this injunction so seriously that he repeats it almost verbatim in Ephesians chapter six. He gives that command a second time to a second church, and God has given it to us in our scriptures twice. I like to think that when we get these commands in Scripture multiple times, it's of an order in which Jesus says to us, Truly, truly, I say unto you. We had one of those this morning. When Jesus says truly, truly, it means pay attention. Listen up. Something important is here. And I think that's the case here with Paul's command. Work is a spiritual duty. It is done with sincerity of heart And with a view to the Lord. You'll notice Paul doesn't describe the bottom line or the profit margin. Or the number of hours we work. He says we are to work from the heart. And with an eye toward pleasing God. And so I want to ask you this question boldly this evening. Is that how you view work? Or is work for you something that you have to bear through? That you don't want to get up in the morning, that you don't want to spend that time, that you dream of winning the lottery and never having to go back to work again. Now, it's interesting. I don't dream of winning the lottery. It's difficult when you never play. Because, of course, the lottery is even in itself a form of gambling and a violation of the Ten Commandments. And it's a way to avoid work. Work is a spiritual duty. ...that God has given to us, even before the fall. And work involves the use of our talent from God. Some of us were meant to crunch numbers. Now, you know by now that that is not me. The numbers are sent over to my wife. Some of us are meant to speak, or to write, or to read, or to organize... Because God has given us those gifts, and we are to use those gifts. You see, it's not just, if I can put it this way, the highfalutin spiritual gifts that we're given that we are to use. Gifts of evangelism, and gifts of service, and gifts of mercy. God gives us gifts to exercise our abilities in work. You have nothing, but it was given to you by God. So if you are an organizational whiz and you can come into a company and help them to turn things around and to be organized and profitable and helpful, that's a gift from God. And not to use that gift is a sin. Work is a means of serving God. Now there are various types of work. And all of them are, I think, in a sense, equally important. We need to stand on the reformational principle that there's no higher-end job. There is nothing that is only satisfactory to the Lord and everything else is second class. There are various effects of our work, but each of them give glory to God as we work heartily unto Him. Now, it's interesting that idleness is seen as out of the ordinary. Paul uses a very interesting word when he talks about being idle or he talks about idleness in verse 11. When we think of idleness, we think of perhaps a couch potato, someone who's just sitting doing nothing. But actually, the word that Paul uses is very interesting. It is a military term. It means to be unruly or disorderly. It literally means out of rank. Get in rank, soldier. Get with the program. We're marching. You're not off by yourself. You're under command. Go forward. And that's what Paul is teaching us. To not use our gifts is to be irresponsible, to be unruly, to be disorderly toward God. Now, work in the history of the church often has fared no better than in our modern culture. Historically, there's been a denigration of work. The Jewish outlook was that the scribes were the ones who did purposeful work and all others did not. And then, really beginning with the early Middle Ages, there was a thought that the only true and best work was to live in a monastery, to serve the Lord only, to put aside all worldly connections. And everything else was second class. But of course, the Reformation recovered a theology of work. It recovered a theology of shoemakers and of farmers and of lawyers and of doctors working heartily unto the Lord. But if we're not careful, this first class and second class view of work is still in our view today. There are many people who view the only type of real work a Christian should be involved in is full-time ministry. Now, I say this as someone who is in full-time ministry. That's not true. There are plenty of other valuable ways to serve the Lord. I personally have advised many young men who weren't certain what they needed to do And thought the only way they could be a faithful follower of Jesus was to enter the full-time ministry. To go off on the mission field. To try to find a pastorate. And what I have said is, the Lord needs faithful workers in his church. He needs deacons. He needs elders. He needs Sunday school teachers. He needs people who will work heartily unto him and fund the ministry of the church. If we were all full-time pastors... Living on a a provision from the church, we would not get very far, would we? No. So don't think of quote-unquote regular work as being second class. That's the broader context. But there is an immediate context that I think we need to understand in the Apostle Paul's day. In Paul's world, that is the Greco-Roman world, slaves did the real work. Smart people, people who knew what they were doing, didn't do work. They had others do work for them. It was thought that the key to life was to have the freedom to philosophize, if I can coin a word. To sit and think, to write, to speak and teach and talk with others. Work was beneath people. It was something others did to free you up to do real important things in the world. And then this happened in the church. As the church grew, Christians were affected by persecution. And what that meant was that Christians lost non-menial jobs. In other words, they were pushed out of employment... In things that were less than the sweeping of floors, the cleaning up of things, the caring for animals. Because they were under persecution. And what happened as a result of that was that for Christians, bitterness and worthlessness set in about work. I can't believe I've been relegated to this. Now, if you want to know what this looks like, you can see this in Katie today. We have so many people from all around the world, very specifically from Venezuela, who come and are a part of our church and who uh, attend our English as a Second Language program and who were lawyers and doctors and professors, and here they drive a cab. Or they work as a waiter. Because they can't get the kind of jobs that they had previously. And we should not let bitterness set in to our hearts, because when bitterness sets in about our work, then we begin to hate our work. We begin to think it's worthless, and we begin to do the minimum possible to simply get by. We're not honoring the Lord, we're not working from the heart, we're not glorifying Him in what we do. And so let me ask you this question Has this ever happened to you? And it could occur in many different ways. For young people, they don't get into the college that they want to. And they think, well, this is a second-tier college. I'm just going to get through and get my degree. I don't need to work very hard. I don't need to do well. I'm just going to do the bare minimum. Or when someone gets passed over for a promotion, they think, well, I'm not valued here. I'll show them how little I can do. We need to be careful that our hearts don't affect our work. And so what you have here in Thessalonica, we've seen this over and over again in both letters, is there has been an emphasis on the day of the Lord, that teachers at Thessalonica have been exhorting everyone in the church that the day of the Lord has either come or will come, and there's no reason to do anything. We just need to wait for the day of the Lord to come. Why should I work hard at a business or on a farm or with my neighbors when very soon Jesus is going to come back and everything's just going to be taken away? Well, we can say now as we read the scriptures, how well did that work out for you 2,000 years later? But you see, we can have that same tendency. This is a very strong drift in modern theology called dispensationalism. There's a famous quote that says, you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship that comes from dispensationalists. They will say, there's no reason to work hard. There's no reason to do anything about this world. There's no reason to see any improvement in this world because at any moment, Jesus could come back and it will all be in vain. But you see, even that view has a false view of work. It says that the value is only in the product produced. When really the value of work is a heart that seeks to please and honor God. And this has caused Christians throughout the centuries to give up on work. To not run businesses. To not be involved in the arts. To not be writing. To abandon the world. And you see what happens eventually is... Now, like then, Christians become lazy. They're simply waiting for time to pass. And so Paul emphasizes the importance of work. You'll notice that he doesn't focus on the reason itself for work. Paul doesn't want to get into a discussion about who has legitimate reasons to work and who doesn't. No. And and this is how you handle Christian behavior. Here's a side note. When you're thinking about Christian behavior, you start with the principle, not with the end outcome. You begin with the principle and apply it to specific instances. And so this is a very important issue for Paul. He writes, Now we command you, brothers, in verse 6, This is again another military term. You might picture in your mind's eye Paul, the master drill sergeant, saying, Get up, folks! I command you. Let's go. That's the language he's using here. This is not a suggestion. This is not, you know, it would be nice if you got around to. No. Paul gives a command, and he writes in a disciplinary fashion. Now, what do I mean by that? Every parent knows that discipline in the home does not begin and end with punishment. It begins with telling your children what to do over and over and over again. I've told you that's the job of a pastor. I have to keep repeating for you things you already know. And that's what parents do with children. And that's what Paul does here with the Thessalonians. It's very interesting. This is not the first time that Paul refers to this. He actually refers to it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So what does that mean? Paul's told them in 1 Thessalonians 4, and in telling them, he's saying, I've already told you before. So that means Paul's already told them twice. And then if we go down to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That's time number three. And now if we come to our text, that's time number four. Do you think Paul takes this seriously? Four times he repeats this command and this encouragement. It is instruction, but it is also exhortation, and it is also a discipline. Now, this reminds us of how we need to give and receive instruction. We often need to press the point home of God's truth. And we shouldn't grow weary in well-doing. That's what Paul says in verse 13. He doesn't grow weary. He is not tired of teaching the Thessalonians over and over again. So this is the context that Paul is dealing with. And then he gives these various motivations to work. The first is in verse 6. He says, You must keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now, keep away here means to keep someone at a distance. To distance yourself from them. So you're not sucked into their patterns of sin and bad behavior. And so that they see that they need to change the way that they're living. There's a metaphor really that Paul is using here. It's it's reminiscent of the language of when a ship would throw up a sail and show that it was putting distance between where it was and where it was headed. Now this is not a strategy. This is not Paul's way to say, you need to work so that the church in Thessalonica can be in the black. It's not that he says, this is how you can help me in my ministry. No, it is a command. We command you. And there are serious implications here. Because to keep distant from those who are idle means no coming to the Lord's table. No fellowship between such Not even any worship. He's saying, if they're going to be idle, keep yourself from them. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Do you see how seriously Paul treats idleness as a sin? Then secondly, Paul gives them an example His example in verses 7 through 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Not because we didn't have that right, but because we wanted to give you an example. No one could look at Paul and say, you're a lazy boy. You're just living off the money of others. You don't do anything all day long. You just teach, you know the old saying, because you can't do, therefore you teach. No. Paul says that I'm an example for you, and in using that phrase, example, he wants them to imitate him, to mimic him. That's what he is saying here. Now, how did he labor? How did he work? Look at the way he describes it. It's hard work. He said, we Toiled and labored. These words describe hard, often physical labor. Paul did not take things the easy way. He didn't do things halfway. He worked hard unto the Lord. And he worked constantly. You'll see he says we worked night and day. But it's not just that he worked hard and not just that he worked constantly. He worked with a purpose that we might not be a burden to any of you, in verse 8. Paul says, follow my example, work hard, work continually, and work for the benefit of others. You know, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we often forget that when a sin is forbidden, the opposite duty is commanded. So, for example, you shall not bear false witness also means you must tell the truth. And so one of the commandments is, you shall not steal. And the opposite command that's enjoined is, you must work hard and labor to be generous to others. That's a command from God. That's what Paul's example was. But Paul also gets very practical in verse 10. He says, you have to work in order to survive. They can't be ignorant They were told exactly what was going on. We give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. And so someone might object. Paul, what do you mean? They'll die if they don't eat. And I tell you, Paul looks at him and he says, yes, I know that. And it seems to me that they're not going to just sit there and die on their couch. That they're going to want to eat. That that's going to motivate them to work. They know that. Even the prodigal son worked harder than he ever worked in order to get the worst of food to survive. In our sin cursed world, we must work in order to live and prosper. Paul says that when we worked, we did not eat others' bread. And he says that if someone works, someone should not be idle, but rather they should earn their own living in verse 12. These two phrases are really the same. To earn one's own living means to eat one's own bread and vice versa. What Paul is saying here is get a living, work hard, support yourself. And what he's telling the Thessalonians Is what he's telling us. Do not enable idleness. Now here's a challenge. For many of us today. We are directed not to encourage laziness. In young people especially. And in friends. We are not to encourage that. It's a sin. Paul's told us that. And we need. Follow Paul's example. Fourthly, Paul says that we must work to bring about harmony in verses 11 through 13. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Laziness leads to meddling. Have you experienced this firsthand in your life? The people who don't do feel like they have every right to stand off to the side and tell you how you should do things in your life. It's amazing. They're not working, but they tell you how you should run your job and you should run your house and you should spend your money and you should do your things. They're busybodies. Why? Because they have nothing else to do but to interject themselves into others' lives. The NIV has actually a very good translation that rolls off the tongue. Paul says, they're not busy, but busybodies. And so they're moving around doing no good. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 13. He says that they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. What Paul's telling us is, if we don't work, Sin breeds. Again, remember what work says. I'm not asking the ladies of the congregation to go out and find a job. You can work at home. I'm not saying you can't go out and find a job either. But all of us can work. All of us have things to do, whether it's studying or working or helping or earning a living. And when we're not busy, our tendency is to gossip and to speak, and interject. We don't want to do that. Paul commands and encourages us to work here. Now, the Thessalonians might counter Paul. This seems like a pretty crazy command in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Why should we invest all our time and hard effort when Jesus is coming back? And, you see, Paul knows that we are to live the Christian life not waiting around for Jesus to come back and rescue us, but we're to live the Christian life in obedience to our Savior and what He has given to us in His revealed will. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is when Peter says, The day of the Lord is at hand. And then his next words are, Practice hospitality. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus is coming back. Have someone over for lunch. You see, that's the way we are to live, obeying and following Jesus. And this is a spiritual matter because work is also crucially important for the kingdom and evangelism. I don't know if you've experienced this, but people who are lazy and who don't work and who are busybodies do not get an audience with unbelievers. You can't just say, well, I think you ought to change your life when you're not doing anything yourself. Work allows us to do good. Another way in which Paul encourages us to work is something that we don't often think of as Christians. It's in verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Shame is not wrong. Those who are disobeying God should feel shame. And that should drive them to obedience. Because those who are still ignoring Paul's command here are obstinate. And so extreme measures are called for. More than just isolation. They need to be shown that their way is wrong and that they need to flee from it. But that's not the highest and most important way. Lastly, in verse 15, Paul says, Gives a motivation to work. In verse 15 he says. Do not regard him as an enemy. But warn him. As a brother. The highest motivation for anything in the Christian life. Is love. And that's what Paul says here. When you motivate others to work. You do it out of love. Love for them. Love for God. Love for the kingdom. Work is important. We were made to work. Work is an important way that we show love and support for others. Work allows us to be generous and to care for others. Work is also important for our evangelism, because a lack of work can be a barrier. We ought to view work as a gift from God, rather than an evil to be avoided. Paul modeled work, and he commanded us to work. Let us honor the Lord in our lives by working with the gifts and talents that the Lord has given to us. Let's pray.